1: Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long term retirement goals.
2: Hope you're having a great weekend. want to thank you so much for joining us this fine Saturday. You can always catch us here every weekend, but also wanted to let you know that you can also join Josh every Monday. He and Bruce Hooley talk money Mondays, 1230 p.m. every week, every Monday right here on 98.9 The Answer. So let's get started. Uh, Josh, we have heard uh, words like bear market, recession, with all the volatility in the market, uh, Explain that to us. What do you think is going to happen, or or what are we headed towards?
0: Yeah, I think. Well, first, let's define what the difference is between a bear market, a recession, a depression, and and I guess full disclosure right up front, a lot of these definitions are, are kind of kind of gray and antiquated, you know. But there's some there's also some funny kind of things that we've heard throughout the years and the differences, and it kind of points to how antiquated some of this is. But by definition, a bear market is a period of time where The market has dropped 20% off of its previous high. So we are officially in a bear market. Now, we have been in a bear market in the NASDAQ for quite some time because small company stocks and technology stocks have taken the brunt of the hit versus, say, the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500. Now, a recession can include a depression. Matter of fact, if you look at, you know, over the years, you know What's the difference between a bear market and a recession? How many times does a bear market turn into a recession? Uh, if you look since 1929, there have been 26 bear markets. So happens more frequently than you might think. But only 15 of those times turned into a recession. And a recession is a period of time where you have a couple of quarters back-to-back, where you have a reduction in GDP growth. In other words, the economy is effectively lagging, shrinking, not growing like it had been in the past. And then we all know that terrible word, which is a depression. And a depression just simply means that that period of time is a heck of a lot more sticky. Now, you'd say, what does all this even mean? Well, I'll give you some jokes that I've heard throughout the years. Uh, And this was back in the the Daily News way back in 1954, this quote came out. It said the difference between a recession and a depression is a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job, (laughs) right? Or you'll hear some of these other jokes like, Depression is when wages are cut so low that that nobody makes enough to live on. A recession is when the price of everything goes so high, nobody can afford to buy them. Well, it's kind of six of one half dozen the other, right? So I think ultimately, you know, recession and depression are both bad. And I think what we're headed for is potentially a recession if some things don't turn around. Now, what does that mean? Well, thankfully, bear markets don't really last that long. If you think about it, the last bear market we encountered was during COVID. And how long did it really take? The market was even. Uh, it started dropping in March, really uh, end of February, and it was even by November. So it wasn't like you lost all of your money and it was gone forever, right? It, it came back pretty quick. Now, depression is where it gets a little, a little uh, more uh, of a challenge, and that usually we're talking about a deep-rooted systemic problem with the economy, not pockets, not just the stock market. But a depression is where people have... Really on a large-scale lost their jobs prices are really high The stock market has been down for a prolonged period of time and let's hope for everybody's benefit that we don't get there But through all of these things and if you look throughout history in almost every scenario There is always a bull market somewhere meaning there is always a place where you can invest your money and accomplish your goals Now there are challenges no question throughout the way just like there are challenges with what if interest rates are really high who does that affect? Well, it certainly affects certain people that are trying to do certain things and not so much others. Similarly with investing, um, even if you're in these terrible times, it makes things much more difficult, particularly if you've been a fair-weather investor. But there will be opportunities. you just got to know where to look.
2: And in terms of the length of a recession and depression, historically, it, they've happened 29 times. What's, what's the longest, kind of, and, and what's been the shortest?
0: Yeah, I don't, don't quote me on this. I don't know the longest off the top of my head. I would say the Great Depression, obviously, has probably been the longest. But if you look in general, if you're in a depression-type scenario, let's think of, let's think of the Great Recession, actually. That was a great, great example. You know, it took a few years, quite frankly, to get back to even, depending upon how you're invested. But that doesn't tell the whole story, and I think this further illustrates my point, and there will be bull markets in certain places. Let's use, for example, a company like Microsoft. You know, Microsoft is a fantastic company. It's done tremendous things over the years, revolutionized a lot, no doubt been a great investment. But if you had bought Microsoft in 1999 at the peak of the dot-com bubble, and then in 2000, 2001, 2002, that bubble burst, it took you over a decade to get back to even in that one stock. Did that mean if you were in the S&P 500, it took you over a decade to get back to even? Of course not. And I think this is really a cause for warning and that if we think about over the last several years, what has happened is we have gotten a lot of money invested in the stock market by people that, quite frankly, don't necessarily know what they're doing. That may be the Reddit investors, may be putting money into crypto kind of blindly. And this is not saying that I don't believe in any of these strategies for any amount of any percentage of your portfolio. But in general, you know, rooster crows, sunrises, people think that they understand exactly what's happening. And the rooster made the sunrise, which certainly didn't happen. And they start investing like they're professionals. And when that happens and you become overfocused in one area, it's really a recipe for potential disaster. And in times like these, you will find out who knows what they're doing and who doesn't pretty quickly.
2: And when it comes to inflation, Josh, that's blindsided a lot of people. And we hope that that trend reverses. What will it take for inflation to stop?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of economists out there uh, coming up with what they think is going to happen, and I, you know, first, I think it's important to say, you know, do economists always know what's going on? You know, economists, I think there's there's two categories of people that can always be wrong and still have a job: economists and uh, and you know, weathermen um, <laughs> or weather people. Right? Uh, Warren Buffett has a, a, a kind of a, a joking quote where he says, the only reason that there are economists in this world is to make fortune tellers look brilliant, because most of the time, everybody's guessing based upon some sort of metric. So if you look in the news today, you'll find equally as many people saying that, you know, I'll give you an example. I saw that uh, capital, capital Economics said that inflation will be underneath 4% by the end of the year. And then I saw another forecast that said inflation will be back down to 2% by 2023. But then you read another forecast and it says, well, inflation is here for at least the next five years. This is what I think. I think that inflation is the highest it's been in a really long time. It's the highest it's been since the late 70s, right? Well, really, I mean, 40 years, let's call it. What has to change for inflation to go away? We could point to a lot of things that are causing inflation, but we could definitely point to two categories as being probably the biggest catalysts. Uh, One is supply chain. And two is the exorbitant amount of money that we as a government either borrowed or printed during COVID to the tune of many, many trillions. And to put those trillions into perspective, if you rewind the clock back to the Reagan administration, the deficit I believe hit 1 trillion for the first time during the Reagan administration. Now, I don't know exactly what the deficit is today, but it's at least 30 times greater than that. We printed more than the total deficit during COVID. That has finally hit the economy. Coupled out with supply chain issues, the rise of cost of gas, et cetera. We have some challenges. I don't see doing a couple of interest rate hikes at the Fed solving that problem by year-end. I think inflation is going to be uh, something that we're going to be tussling with and contending with for the next couple of years. And you need to know what typically does well from an investment perspective during times like those so that you don't get caught in the jet wash of inflation and then ultimately You're investing your money in assets that aren't keeping up with inflation, and inflation is eroding your purchasing power, and that can be a tumultuous scenario for somebody who's preparing for retirement, or definitely even worse, for somebody who's in retirement.
2: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. So what should people nearing retirement or in retirement be investing in?
0: Well, without giving, you know, complete advice on this would work for everybody, I will tell you this. We have a couple of challenges. One, if you're too conservative during times like these, when you have interest rates that are really, really low and you have inflation that's arguably really, really high, you're certainly not going to do it by putting your money under the mattress. So you cannot contend with inflation by being ultra safe, at least not today's environment. What people typically use as their kind of recipe uh, for investing for the long term is I'm going to go buy uh, the S&P 500 or stocks, let's call it, as a general term, and I'm going to buy bonds. And while I don't think that that is a bad strategy necessarily, it's worked for a really long time, you have to understand how all of those investments work and the challenges that you're faced with investing in them. For example, as interest rates go up, long-term bonds— decline if you need to get out of them early. And since most of us own bond funds rather than individual bonds, we can't determine when that fund manager is going to either choose to or have to get out of those investments. So we could argue that long-term bond funds are in a difficult spot and we're already seeing that this year bond funds are way off the mark running about half the losses of the s p 500 which is good but still that's a very significant loss rate if you couple inflation with what bonds have done you're well into the double digit losses so knowing that how do we navigate that well we we would definitely want to shorten up the duration on our bonds maybe we'd look to inflation protected bonds maybe we would look towards You know something on the shorter scale of things and prepare and wait for interest rates to rise and then take advantage of that via some other vehicle. On the stock market side of things, you can start looking at, well, what has really gone up like a rocket ship and where are valuations? In other words, we need to get back to the, what is a company actually worth and why do I want to own it? Because I think oftentimes we say things like, well, you know, the stock market, well, the stock market is doing this. Sure, the stock market is a real thing, but what is the stock market? The stock market is buying shares of companies. So I think we need to get back to buying shares of companies that you think you would want to own. I think we just carte blanche kind of buy a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't really looked into. And when I say not us here at the company, but people in general, they kind of buy on whims. And it turns into somewhat gambling. Or they buy the overall market and keep their fingers crossed. We have to do real bottom-up analysis to find out, is Coca-Cola a great company to own right now? Is it a good value to purchase? Do I believe that this company is going to be around for the next 20, 30, 40 years? And do I think that this investment is going to treat me well in the long run? Once you have that conviction, then you can weather some storms because you understand why you purchased something. If you don't understand why you bought it to begin with, When times get tough, you are certainly not going to hold on to it. Now, there are other challenges, Diane, but the biggest challenge right now is understanding why you're buying what you're buying, why things react the way that they do, and creating an environment where you're insulated from a lot of this volatility so you can thwart off inflation and be able to do the things that you want to do and achieve the goals you want to achieve.
2: And it sounds like something that people can't do on their own. So important to have a good financial advisor.
0: Well, I I certainly wouldn't say people can't do it on their own, but I would akin it to, you know, I'm kind of a a handy guy, but there are certain tasks at my house that I realize I could save a hundred bucks and then I go try and do them. And I realize that I spent a hundred bucks trying to save a hundred bucks to turn around and hire somebody and pay them 200 bucks to fix my mistake. So, you know, I think, There are definitely people who are very intelligent, who know how to do these types of things. And by all means, go for it. However, if you don't have a firm grasp on what you should do, don't try. You don't get a whole lot of cracks in life at making compounding work. And compounding is your biggest asset. Time is your biggest asset. Don't waste time by doing the wrong thing. Start doing the right thing as soon as possible. Start doing planning as soon as possible so the outcomes can come as quickly as possible.
2: Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. You can always join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 12.30 p.m. right here on ninety eight nine The Answer. More with Josh
3: Pick when we come back.
1: We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer.
3: 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com thanks
1: for listening to the aptus retirement blueprint radio show with josh pick to schedule your complimentary customized planning session give josh a call at 614-364-7300 that's 614-364-7300
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call. His number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, I know this is different for every person, but how do you help people figure out how much they can safely spend per year when they're
0: retired? So there's a general guideline, and I want to talk about that. I actually talked to Bruce about that. He asked me a question about the the 4% rule. And the 4% rule is essentially a a kind of time-tested, age-long rule that says if you retire at age 65 and you plan on having a 20 to 30-year retirement and you invest roughly 50% of your money in stocks and 50% of your money in bonds and you only pull out 4%, then you'll be able to adjust for inflation at roughly 3% for the rest of your life. Now, I know that's a lot of percentages thrown out at once, but ultimately what it means is as long as I go about half risk on, half risk off, I pull out 4% of my pot, then I'll be able to, to live for the rest of my life on it. Now, I think, you know, as a general guideline, you don't want to get too far away from that kind of rule of thumb, meaning that if you look and say, well, I got $500,000 and I'm going to pull out, you know, 10% per year, it's probably a little outside of bounds and you better have a darn good reason for it. But at the same time, that does not mean that it's right for everybody. Uh, and when I talk at universities and they say, well, explain, well, perfect example would be I'm going to retire at 70 and no, many, nobody in my family's ever lived past 75. Do I need to prepare for a 30-year retirement? Maybe, maybe not. But that's a decision that the client gets to make. Uh, our job as investment professionals, financial planners, investment advisors, whatever term you want to use, is to provide the information. But ultimately, it's the client's money. So the client gets to decide. So what questions are important? Longevity. Uh, risk tolerance is important. If you have 100% of your money sitting in, the, in a checking account right now earning essentially zero interest, then obviously your withdrawal rate is going to have to go down because you're not, your money is not working for you. You are just withdrawing and depleting your balance over time. If the 80s, for example, and you are able to acquire a CD or a, a bond, an individual bond that was paying you know, 16%, then I would say, you know, you might be able to withdraw a little bit more. Um, And then, you know, it depends on how much you would like to stress test your particular scenario. Let me explain. If you had a million dollars and you said, well, 4% sounds good to me. I'll live on 40,000 bucks a year adjust for inflation. But then you say, well, you know, but I want to plan on inflation potentially being 10% a year because I'm just not confident about what's coming up. Or... I think taxes are going to go up by 20% a year. Or I think, and you want to start throwing in these these severe stressors, well, then you're going to need to back down that withdrawal rate a little bit. But if you say, you know what, I think this is a flash in the pan. I think that inflation is going to go down. I think that we're going to be back in 1.5%, 2% inflation rates again. Well, then it's your call, and we can forecast that out. Now, part of my job clearly is to give my opinion on whether or not I think any of those things are true and what is a reasonable level to stress test. But another one would be Social Security. If Social Security is a large percentage of the amount of money that you live on and you're concerned that Social Security might go down, go away, insert whatever bad scenario you want to think of, then we probably need to back down that withdrawal rate. So there is general guidelines and rules of thumb, but they're just that. They're just thumbs. You need to kind of bring that into what makes sense for you.
2: Do a lot of people do you suggest to work on a budget before they hit retirement and really look at what they are spending?
0: Yeah, I would caution everyone, though, to not be so honed in on your budget. And I'll give you an example. You know, I'll have people come in that, let's say, they're, they're living on $10,000 a month right now. And, uh, and the reason I know that is because that's what's actually getting in their checking account from their paycheck every month. So they're actually living on $10,000 a month. And at the end of the month, they have $500 left over. So clearly, they're spending $9,500 a month on something. And when they go to retire, I say, is anything going to change? Nope, nothing's going to change. Okay, but they come in with a budget of $5,000 a month because they wrote down, you know, $43 a month for gas. And forty. I mean, they're so specific about the exact dollar amount of cable, et cetera. And I go, well, so you're just going to cut $4,000 a month from your budget and still be just as happy as you are today. Well, that doesn't sound that good. So I think the easiest way to establish a budget is how much actually hits your checking account every two weeks or twice a month now. And at the end of the month, how much do you have beyond that, that you're living on? Let's start there. And then if the house is going to get paid off in two years or something significant is going to change, kids are going to leave the house, whatever it might be, we can reduce from there. But in general, If you're happy the way you're living now, let's start there as the benchmark and then add or subtract from there rather than coming in with a budget when you haven't lived on a budget in a really long time potentially and saying, that's what I'm committing to for the next rest of my life. Um, So I I caution people to do that very specific budgeting unless we absolutely have to.
2: Speaking of kids leaving the house, so kids can be... uh... Uh, you know they need money at time from time to time. <laughs> you can go ahead
0: and say it. I have three of them. They're very expensive.
2: <laughs> They're very expensive. So when people are retired, what advice do you give them? I mean, do you just say, "Look, you can have to quit giving money to your kids after a certain age in order for your retirement to uh, last"?
0: You know, it's it's a challenge for some and not for others. So it's part of the conversation. Actually, anybody that's coming to my office, they'll they'll tell you as part of the conversation. It's always you know what's... Your name, your spouse's name, dates of birth, kids, how are your kids doing? Are they all out on their own? Are they all self-sufficient? Are we helping kids in any monetary way? If so, is that something you want to continue to do? And uh, it's not my job to tell them to stop, but it is my job to say, if you don't stop, in your scenario, that is the barrier to entry on retirement for you. You can't continue to give your kids $1,000 a month when you're retired because the resources just aren't there. So you can continue to work longer or cut the kids off, and then you, you're able to retire. Again, my my job is to be honest. My job is to do the math. My job is to provide you the most stress-free, ironclad retirement possible. And the only way I can do that is by being honest, open, and giving you sometimes the hard truths.
2: Well, and you're a good excuse for the parents. You're like, well, Josh says we can't. I would give you the you money, know- but Josh says no. <laughs>
0: I have heard that before, and I hate being the scapegoat. But, you know, if it works, go for it. Right.
2: This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule a meeting with Josh to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614 364 And the Aptus Blueprint process is the conversation that Josh has been talking about. Sequence of returns, how can correctly managing those help lay the groundwork for a stress-free retirement?
0: I think, you know, there's some challenges when you look at retirement planning or or any sort of goal planning with money that seem very obvious. Like, well, if the stock market pulls back 20% and I'm invested 100% in the stock market then I lost 20%, that seems... Blatantly obvious. I went from a million to 800,000. That hurt. When you think about interest rates, well, if I put my money in the bank and they're not paying me anything, that's very clear. Taxes going up, very clear. Reductions in Social Security or increases, very clear. Sequence of returns is arguably one of the biggest issues with retirement income planning, but it's kind of on the periphery. It's in the background. It's not something that you can put your finger on as easy. So it's kind of this silent potential killer of a retirement plan. And ultimately what sequence returns risk is, is the simple risk of bad luck and bad timing. Meaning if you retired in 2000, as opposed to in 2003, you would probably have a much different outlook on the stock market. You'd have a different outlook on how much money you had, depending upon how you invested. And that Immediate decline. So I I retire, I have a million dollars, stock market pulls back by 50% in the first year, and now I have a half a million dollars, can have a catastrophic long term effect. And really, what was that? Was it because you invested poorly? Not necessarily. It's just bad luck and bad timing. So there's been a lot of analysis done on this. And the analysis simply says what if we took the same five rates of return and we just kind of repeated them over 25 years? So everybody got the same you know, five rates of return in five different buckets, but let's just turn the rates of return kind of on their heads. So client number one gets these rates of return, client number two gets these rates of return, and they're the same rates. They're just in reverse. And ultimately, while you're working and putting money into your investments, that sequence or bad timing doesn't matter a bit. However, when you start taking money out of your investments, it can be catastrophic. I mean, think about it if... if two of those rates of return were 10% and negative 10%, and one's flipped on its head and the other one isn't. And client number one goes from a million to a million one and then takes out 50 grand. They're still sitting pretty. But if client two goes from a million down to 900,000, takes out 50, they're at 850. Well, now that those are two drastically different numbers one might not be able to recover from. So how do we eliminate that risk? There's a bunch of ways, but I think the easiest way to explain would be... Uh, Thinking of your money in buckets or thinking of your money in categories or or separate allocations, kind of compartmentalizing where you put your money. And in simple terms, you would say, well, for the next couple of years, I'm going to get my income from this bucket. And that bucket, because I'm going to get the money right away, has to be pretty darn guaranteed, pretty safe, and pretty liquid. Then for the next three to five years, I'm going to get my money from this bucket. And we might be able to take a little bit more risk with that bucket, but it still needs to be pretty liquid. And then you keep on going so on and so on. By the time you get to the, well, I can, you know, invest this money in something a little bit more high risk because I'm not going to touch it for 15 years. Not only does it give you the ability to weather the storms of the overall stock market, but it also gives you a somewhat of a a mental stress-free relief as you view your income in retirement, knowing that Yeah, bucket number four really took a bath this year due to volatility in the stock market, but we had already kind of prepared and planned for that. And we have 10 years before we have to worry about that. And there's never been a time in history where it hasn't rebounded in 10 years. So I can live with that. I can be comfortable. And more importantly, not make an irrational decision locking in the losses of that particular portfolio that i never recover from. So making sure you do that compartmentalization type strategy is critical, not just in the outcome, But it's critical in the way you live your life, you view your life, and how much stress you have in your life when you retire. 614-364-7300.
2: That is Josh's number. More with Josh Pick when we come back.
0: We'll be back with more
1: at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, we've heard a lot of financial professionals tell us to stay the course during tough stretches. But how things are right now, what do we use the same advice for this year?
0: In the long run... If you look over the last 50 years or so, and you said, I invested in the S&P 500, which is quote unquote the market for, by most people's opinion. And you said, I'm just going to buy it, hold it, never touch it. You would have averaged about, well, let's go over the last 20 years. It's easier math. You would have averaged about 8%-ish down in the sevens. But let's just round up for easy math and say eight with dividends included if you would have said, you know, i can't stand these swings, i'm going to i'm going to try and get in and out of the market. and you miss just the top 10 best days. That's it. Which by the way, the top 10 best days usually fall within a matter of weeks of the worst days. But if you would have just missed the top 10 best days, you would have taken that return down into the fives. If you would have missed the top 20 days, that number gets cut even more and it's down into the 3s. And then if you miss the top 30 days, you don't even want to talk about it anymore. So you're thinking about 20 days over 20 years. So to answer your question, Diane, should you just hang in there through the wild swings? Absolutely 100% with some caveats. So, one, does that mean that you should put all of your money in the stock market? Probably not. Why? Well, remember, we just got done talking, uh, you know, at nauseum about the risk of sequence of returns. So if you're in retirement, the theory of just hanging in there and, why, and just riding the wild swings might be catastrophic. You probably don't want to do that. So you have to be invested accordingly to what you're trying to accomplish. But for the money that you've decided, that compartmentalization, that bucket that we were talking about earlier, that you decided to put in the growth element of your portfolio, or this is the money we're not going to touch for 10 or 15 years because I have my income needs satisfied over here, you absolutely should leave that money alone. Now, in our office, for anybody that's listening that's a a client of ours, you're probably going, yeah, but. And that yeah, but is we don't just invest the money in the S&P 500. Obviously, we're going to take advantage of cyclical trends. We're going to pay attention to things like valuations, we don't necessarily just carte blanche, go buy the S&P 500. We may only buy what we believe to be the top 50 stocks, for example, in the S&P 500, and then potentially hold on to the lion's share of those for a long period of time. We pay attention to themes. There's no reason to be in long-term bonds in our opinion right now. So will we do that just because we say, no, just hang in there, stay the course? No, it's an unfavorable market condition to be in that position. So we're going to shift, pivot, Doesn't mean we're going to go to cash, but we're going to shift amongst the choices we have available to improve the situation, limit volatility, mitigate some risk. But the other important thing that I think we just need to talk about is you have to understand yourself. And I'm sure we can all think of people who, uh, at one point or another, the market corrected. They got out of the market because they just couldn't stand it anymore. The things they heard on the news about this time is the final nail in the coffin and we better get out before we lose all of our money and they did so the market pulled back 30 40 50% they went from a million to 600,000 and then they got out and they stayed out for 5 10 years but then the market had been charging for so long think about you know oh eight, oh nine, got out and now here we are a year ago and the market has done nothing but gone go up like a rocket ship for the entire time and now you have this fear of missing out right the kids call it fomo right this fear of missing out. And we got I finally got to get back in. And then what happens again? Well, the market just pulled back 20% again. So now I had 600 grand. I said, "You know what? I can't sit on the sidelines forever. This inflation's going to erode me. I'm going to get back in." And I was rewarded for getting back in with losing 180,000. $120,000, excuse me. So I lost $120,000 and now I'm down below a half a million and uh, now I might not ever get out. So what did I accomplish over the last 15 years or so? I took a million and turned it into a half a million and increased my stress level dramatically. So, the takeaway here is you need to understand yourself and are you actually capable of handling that emotional roller coaster? And if the answer is that's not for me, that's okay. If it's not for you, we have to pick investment choices that will appeal to your level of volatility tolerance, not risk tolerance, but volatility tolerance, and plan accordingly. You are much better off earning 3 or 4% from now until the end of time than you are losing 50% of your money every 10 or 15 years. But we do, can all agree on that.
2: Do people know what their volatility tolerance is when they first come meet with you? Because, you know, it's kind of like someone who thinks taking a uh, roller coaster ride's a good idea until they're actually strapped in the seat and going down down very quickly,
0: Well, and even more to complicate the issue, it's it changes over time. It's very easy to be risky when you have ten dollars invested in something. It gets much more difficult when you have a million. so it's a it's an ever evolving conversation, but it's asking the right questions. And also you can eliminate a lot of that that sensitivity to that, a lot of that trepidation, a lot of that feeling uneasy by compartmentalizing the investments. In other words, create buckets so people can say I understand that this one is is not going to go up as much but in the down times it's not going to go down either and this one is the middle of the road and then this one is the aggressive when our brains can compartmentalize we can tolerate a lot more than we would if we were bundled together this account is up three percent this one's down 10 I knew that that was a possibility I'm okay with that rather than man I'm just down five so the whole thing's down five, it helps dramatically
2: so it's kind of like dollar cost averaging, but looking at your buckets, same sort of idea
0: Well dollar cost averaging is is a little bit different strategy, but same general idea where even though you know on one side it might be a loss, on the other side it's a win that's kind of the, the strategy behind behind dollar cost averaging you know emotionally and mentally. This is the same type of approach, but ultimately, what ends up happening to diane we're talking about kind of the psychological impact of it. Is over time it's actually a safer more logical way to invest particularly when it comes to I need income from this so I've saved my whole life busted my butt worked hard for the money that I've saved done all the right things and now I actually want to live off of it because that's what this whole retirement thing was pitched to me as well how do I comfortably live off that for the rest of my life without constantly watching CNBC and panicking well the way that you do that is you set up a structured plan for the withdrawals, both in market volatility, interest rate volatility, but also tax volatility amongst other things. And once you build that, then you can have much more comfort with an equal or sometimes even more risk because you understand the methodology. So education is the key component to being able to tolerate this. But even beyond that, I have some clients that just simply say, if I lost 15% of my money tomorrow, I I would go into a tailspin. Uh, So let's never get in a scenario to do that and that is absolutely your prerogative, we'll set it up that way, no problem.
2: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. His number is 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. Josh, crypto, prices plunged. Those who are directly invested obviously are affected, but what are some other areas of the economy that this could affect?
0: Well, crypto has been a wild ride and, uh, you know, there's a lot of varying opinions on it, but I think that most of the opinions are the concept of crypto and the technology of crypto isn't going anywhere. So whether or not cryptocurrency will be adopted as some sort of, you know, global currency or how many nations will use it as its predominant currency because it's not as able to be manipulated by governments, et cetera, and all the things that we've heard about crypto, that is yet to be seen. We, we don't know. But what we do know, is the technology behind blockchain has been very transformative in the technology space. So you can have all of these various digital currencies, but really what blockchain has done is made it easier for currency transactions throughout the web. And that's not going anywhere. Is that going to change potentially the way that we do business online? A hundred percent. So has that disrupted the way we do technology? Yes. I don't see that ever retreating. The other thing that we're seeing really starting to come up is and you know, I think Fidelity might have been the first one that came to the to the table with this, but you know, they recently I've I've heard some announcements on Bitcoin being added to four oh one Ks. Will that change a lot of things? I think it will. And I think particularly for some of the younger generation who are very interested in this, it's almost like the younger generation gold, if you want to call it that. Um, I think there's going to be quite a bit of inflows potentially into crypto. Now, the challenge with that is the level of volatility and just the new players that are constantly coming in and out of the crypto space. So if you remember, we were talking, we've talked a lot today about, you know, this kind of ideology of creating a compartmentalization and different investments for different purposes and, and a little bit of a different way to view, maybe even asset allocation. My concern is that how disruptive or how detrimental will it potentially be for investors who are, you know, kind of into this fair weather investing, get rich quick, you know, I'm going to look on Reddit and I'm going to buy the new cryptocurrency or the new F- NFT. And, and again, all these things have value, not knocking the NFT uh, market either. But to put all your apples in that basket, is that the best long-term approach? Would you rather bank all of your money on the newest cryptocurrency that may or may not make it, or on a company that's been in existence for 50 years that has you know, technology and or a product that uh, is going to weather the storms of all markets and has market share and capitalization, all the things that you would want in a company that it will continue to pay you as a shareholder over time? I choose the latter, obviously for the large chunk of what your investment in your future needs to be. But I think that it will continue to disrupt and it will continue to change a lot of the things and a lot of the ways that we conduct business moving forward because it's not going anywhere.
2: To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, Josh's phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614 364 you can always join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 1230 p.m. right here on 98.9 The Answer. Josh's website is aptuswealth.com. More with Josh
3: Pick when we come back.
1: We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer.
3: 7300 or visit aptuswealth.com thanks
1: for listening to the aptus retirement blueprint radio show with josh pick to schedule your complimentary customized planning session give josh a call at 614-364-7300 that's 614-364-7300
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, along with inflation, interest rates have been in the news a lot. How different can this news of increasing rates be for different people?
0: Well, I mean, higher interest rates affect things that you pay for. So think of a mortgage think of uh, credit cards, car loans, or pending that uh, there isn't a complete elimination of student loan debt. Obviously, it's going to affect people's student loan debt as well, particularly in purchases where you're either buying them brand new and you're starting a brand new loan, or you're on a variable rate. So that's the real risk, right? You can control whether or not you buy something new, but if you have a loan in existence that has a variable rate, think home equity loans, think student loans, think variable loan rates on your mortgage, or if you have a variable loan on your car, your debt carrying position could be dramatically affected overnight. But similarly, if you wanted to go buy a new home and interest rates on a 30-year mortgage were just 3%, and now they're 6 well, your carrying costs of purchasing that home just got dramatically different. And that's one of the arguments, by the way, kind of a sidebar as to whether or not is the housing market going to correct. And I know you and I have talked about this at nauseum. Neither one of us believe that it's going to correct, that it may slow down, but that purchasers will have to ultimately make the decision to buy a little bit less of a home. Um, So, you know, it can affect any purchaser of anything that does not have cash to pay for it. But on the flip side of it, The positive is if interest rates at the bank go up to 8%, now you're earning 8% potentially on your savings account. So if you're a saver, in the long run, a raise in interest rates can be a positive for a number of things. Not necessarily a positive for the stock market, but a positive for CDs, money markets, long-term individual bond holds uh loaning money out so if you actually want to turn yourself into the bank and borrow money out to people you're actually lo- you're you know obviously loaning it for a lot more if you own homes that you're renting out and now those homes become more difficult to become affordable well now people are going to have to start potentially renting more and in an inflationary environment that means that rent prices are going to go up and if you're in a 30-year fixed mortgage from two years ago uh, that is pure profit to you so as an investor a raise in interest rates can be positive. As a purchaser and or borrower, it can be a very detrimental thing. So, you know, you got to make sure you're on the right side of it. And I think, you know, earlier in the week, Bruce asked me, and I don't know that I did a great job answering it, but he said, you know, how do you stay on the right side of some of these things? And is the economy just cyclical? You know, why does it do this? Why, why does it feel like we constantly get ourselves into trouble? And I, you know, there's this old adage that, you know, hard times create hard people, which create good times, which create weak people. And then the kind of the history repeats itself. Right. And I think that, you know, when interest was so low and the economy was growing so quickly, the concept of why would you pay cash? Just borrow it becomes a very logical answer. Think of the same as cash. I go to the store. Why would I, why would I pay cash for this item when they're going to give me the item for same as cash for three years, why wouldn't I put? Why wouldn't I keep the money? Well, the challenge there is: what if you do get yourself in a financial difficult position? You lose your job, something happens over the next couple of years, and now even though it was same as cash for two years, well, now the two years has come due, and you don't have the money to pay for it anymore, and the interest rate on that is a variable rate that's twenty two percent. Well, now you're you're kind of you've got yourself in a difficult pickle. So. The challenge is make sure you live well within your means. Make sure that in today's environment of raising interest rates, you focus on getting fixed loans as much as possible. Keep your debt position low and put yourself in an investor position and not a borrower position, and you should be able to weather any storm uh, rather well. But be cautious and careful and don't get overextended.
2: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session with Josh and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. Josh, you've mentioned a health savings account as an additional way to bring savings into retirement to pay for medical costs. Who's eligible for these accounts and and how can they set one up?
0: Eligibility is pretty easy. You know, it used to be the health savings account was only for, quote unquote, high deductible plans, meaning that the purpose or the way that it was passed through the government uh, to get all the tax benefits that it has is we need to help people uh, help cover some of this deductible issue that we're incurring as health plans are getting worse and worse. And not everybody qualified because, you know, what is a high deductible plan? Well, you know, it used to be if you rewind the clock back, my deductible 20 years ago was probably 250 or 500 dollars a year. Well, now you're hard pressed to find anybody uh, that has a deductible that's down that low. So, you know, how do you qualify? For all intents and purposes, almost everybody qualifies. You know, the deductibility requirements most people will meet in some form or fashion. But you got to check, make sure that you qualify and that your current health plan. Uh, has a high enough deductible for you to, to play. Um, how do you set one up? There's a ton of uh, providers out there. Uh, you just Google HSA online and you'll find the biggest ones will pop up. And you go to your local bank. A lot of the local banks will have them. And, and the only thing you really need to pay, uh, pay attention to there is what are my choices as far as investments go and what are the costs associated with it? And what I mean by that is an HSA can be invested, much like a 401k if you want, or it can sit in cash. So if you're a very young person and you, you have no intention of actually needing this money anytime soon, but you're doing it because it's a, a logical savings vehicle, it's a play on the future where you say, well, I know I'll, at some point I'm going to need uh, health care and I want to prepare for that. You can invest inside of your HSA into stocks, bonds, mutual funds, just like you can in your 401k. There's usually a cost associated with that. It might be $25 a month. It might be a percentage of assets. It might be something. But if you said, I just want to hold it in cash, I don't, I'm using this for healthcare over the next couple of years. I don't need to play the stock market thing. This is a pure tax play for me. Then there are plenty of choices out there. Uh, local credit unions are a great place to look that will have HSA plans available to you at zero cost per month. What is the benefit, again, of an HSA? If you recall, we talk about IRAs. There's traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs, and an HSA for the purposes of healthcare is like the best of both worlds. In a traditional IRA, you put money in pre-tax; you don't pay the taxes on the dollars today. It grows tax-deferred, but then you have to, when you pull the money out, you pay taxes on it. Whereas a Roth, you put in money after tax, grows tax-deferred, and you pull it out tax-free. An HSA, as long as you use it for healthcare, is the best of both of those. You don't pay taxes on the money you put into it. It grows tax-deferred, and as long as you use it for healthcare, the money you use is completely tax-free. You'll hear people throw around a term, triple-tax-advantaged, right? Because you, you never pay taxes on anything on it ever, as long as you use it for healthcare. It's a great way to plan for retirement income as well because an HSA does not go away. It's not a use-it-or-lose-it proposition. So if you're 40 years old and you start doing HSA today, you can use that HSA when you're 65 years old when you retire. And you've gotten all this tax-deferred growth over time. You use it tax-free. And now that's just an added pool of money on a tax-favored basis that you can use in retirement. So if you can afford to do so, and if you can do so because of the eligibility requirements, and you've already you know, got the match out of your 401k, you're already doing the right things for retirement. You're saving 15% or so towards your retirement and you already have an emergency fund and you've checked all these other boxes, you have the right amount of life insurance. I highly encourage everybody to take a peek at HSAs. They can be a wonderful tool, not just for tax planning today, but for income and tax planning later.
2: Is there a maximum that you can contribute?
0: There is. Yeah, there absolutely is. There is no income eligibility requirement. So, you know, if you make a million dollars a year or you make $20,000 a year, that doesn't matter. So, there's no cutoffs like there are on some of the IRA eligibility requirements. But there is a family maximum and an individual maximum. And I believe, shooting from the hip here, it changes every year, obviously, with inflation. But I believe in 2022, the maximum for a family is somewhere around seventy two, seventy three hundred, 7300 And then for an individual, you can kind of cut those numbers roughly in half. So you can put in, you know, call it roughly $3,800, something like that, as an individual. So look into it, you know, obviously, They'll give you the maximums when you go to sign up. They're well-published. You can Google it. Uh, But again, they change slightly every single year, and they're slated to go up again next year.
2: Are there any costs associated
0: with that? Well, that's, again, depending on how you use them. So if you're using them from an investment perspective, some companies will charge for that. And if you're using it and you just go through local credit union and you say, I just want the money to sit in cash, it's just just for tax purposes, uh, is the only reason I'm doing it, then usually you can get that done for free. So... You know, it's very easy to go online, Google, and look through all the ones and then see which one makes the most sense for you. And it's going to come down to what just that, what makes the most sense for you. But the tax benefits and all of the general guidelines apply to every HSA, no matter who you decide to go with.
2: So let's say you have a substantial amount in there and then you kind of need the, the money for an emergency. Are you allowed to borrow against it or borrow it and pay it back?
0: You can't borrow it, but what you can do is actually take the money out. Now, the one thing you lose when you take the money out for non-health-related expenses would be you lose that tax-free benefit on the back end. So it's not ideal, but it's certainly not catastrophic either. So there are some issues there's some hurdles you need to jump through when you reach retirement if you don't use the money for health-related expenses. But also note that what is deemed to be a health-related expense is pretty liberal. So if you look up HSA online and Google, you know, what what is the... What is considered a health-related expense that qualifies for an HSA tax-free distribution? It will give you a list of items, and that item list is pretty robust. So, massages. Would think, well, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but you know, like if you go and you go buy, you know, vitamins, you know, that might be on there. Massages might be on there. There, there might be a whole host of things on there that you're doing anyway that you wouldn't deem necessarily to be a medical expense that may be eligible. That might help you get around. That challenge. But of course, if you absolutely need the money, um, you're going to be glad you had it, regardless of whether or not you ultimately have to pay taxes on it. Thank God you ended up saving this money because you have peeled through by the time you get your HSA. You've peeled through your emergency fund. You've peeled through your 401k. You've peeled through so many things that thank God you had the HSA to begin with, or you'd be even in worse shape.
2: So let's say you do get in trouble. It's smarter to do your to take out of your 401k than go to your HSA.
0: i'm just saying there's other options obviously this is unique to each individual uh for example in your 401k you could borrow the money so you had mentioned earlier that you could borrow the money uh, from your hsa and the answer was no well from your 401k you probably can so there's you know with every scenario when you get down that rabbit hole of we got to make some difficult decisions there are better answers and worse answers and it's critical i think unless you have a very strong grasp on what you're doing you know contact a professional and say all right, this is temporary, but I need to come up with a plan of attack to solve this temporary problem. What is the best way to do that? And there's been many instances where we figured out ways to get people temporary money, whether it's from their 401k, IRA, whatever it might be, for a very short term period of time with the least amount of tax consequences and the least amount of repercussions to the client in the long run. But you need to know all the rules. Like there's a 60 day rule and the list goes on and on and on where you can kind of access money without penalty.
2: Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Catch him Monday at 1230 with Bruce Hooley. And that is it for this week. Join us again next weekend. And thanks for joining us today.
1: You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300 or online at aptuswealth.com. That's A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer. Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing company.
0: Lots of channels. Nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching